From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. You think that what you read is true, that the photos with Hefner, with Bono and Keitel, the mugshots and gold records can explain this bell in all her complexity? At long last, sir, have you no sense of your own gullibility? Welcome. You're listening to 90.1 FM KZSU Stanford. My name is Killeen Hansen, and this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. This past fall, an unfortunate collision with a fire hydrant turned the spotlight on Stanford golfing legend Tiger Woods. Tiger had been the poster boy for responsible stardom. He was the most unlikely of celebrities, a sports hero who'd never seemed to get into trouble, until recently. Now it seems that Tiger Woods is a man just like the rest of us, just as prone to stupid and short-sighted decisions. Today's show is all about our heroes and the pedestals we put them on. These can be our biological fathers or our literary role models. They can be our celebrity crushes or our sports heroes. Who are these men and women whom we heroicize? And what happens when we put them on a pedestal? And what happens when they fall off? Our show today will be in three parts. In part one, I interview my own father about his experience reuniting, in a way, with his father, who had disappeared to 50 years earlier. What happens when you refind your father, and how does the reality of the person compare to the man you had always imagined? In part two, we'll hear an excerpt from Andrew Altschul's newest book, Lady Lazarus, which follows the life of Calliope, the daughter of two devastatingly famous rock musicians. In this excerpt, we examine what it means to be the daughter and wife of a rock celebrity. In part three, we talk to Arnold Rampersad, professor of American literature at Stanford University, about his latest book entitled Ralph Ellison, A Biography. Rampersad talks about the challenge of impartially approaching the, the task of writing a biography of a literary legend. In the process, he discovers that perhaps knowing the author is human, just like us, makes Invisible Man a richer book to read. That's the menu for the afternoon. We hope you'll join us for the show. We'll start our show with a simple story. Father leaves boy. Boy becomes man. Man finds father. What happens then? Over 50 years ago, when my father was four and my uncle was two, His father, my grandfather, disappeared, took off, vanished into thin air. In his stead, my father and uncle were raised by three women, their mother, their aunt, and their grandmother. The mystery disappearance of Arthur Alexander Hansen seemed a thing of the past. Until two years ago. Two years ago, I received a phone call from my father. His father, Art Hansen, my grandfather, had been found, and he had died six months earlier. This radio show gave me the opportunity to ask him about those weeks and what he learned about the father he had never had. My dad mentions a few names throughout the interview. Mark is his brother, Carrie is their half-sister, and Lisa is Carrie's half-sister. She's technically no blood relation to my father, but she was raised by his father. And his father was named Arthur Alexander Hansen. He went by Art for short. Here's my father. I know I had three 
three very clear memories of my father interacting with him. They would all have to be around the time I was old enough to remember, probably four, because he took off before I turned five, I think. Uh, and one was, I remember my dad and I were driving back from maybe the beach, I don't know, and my dad pulled over and we saw a dog and he pulled over and picked up the dog and put it in the car and brought it home. Why that sticks in my mind, I don't know, but I remember sitting in the car and remember obviously as a kid excited that I had a dog, not knowing that maybe that wasn't a good thing to do. It could have been somebody's dog and probably was that was loose. Second one was visiting him in his apartment after he had moved out. And it was an apartment that had a pool in the center, probably a two-story apartment, with, you know, circling the pool. And my brother and I were painting the pool with these orange life jackets on. You know, my brother's two and I'm four. And he was kind of laying out by the pool, talking to some other people. And then the third one was on Oriola Boulevard. We were playing, he must have been there visiting or whatever, playing on the grass. It was a really steep, short lawn, and some kid pushed me down. I rolled down the hill, and I don't know if I was upset or whatever. And I remember my, maybe I asked him to do something, or he pushed me to do something, and he didn't do anything. Why does that stick in my head? I don't know. But those are the only live memory encounters I had of my father. All the rest would be pictures or stories. You know, photos always show a happy family. You don't put something in a photo scrapbook that doesn't reinforce the image you want to be reinforced. So I had pictures of him through scrapbooks but none of it from personal recollection and as the years go on you're never quite sure where that image of your father came from do I remember him doing that is it because somebody told me he did that or is it because I saw a picture of him doing that you never really know after years you know just where did that image of him come from? That's another thing I remember when I was young, that the only negative thing I ever heard about my father was my grandmother said, I must have kind of pushed her on her. I must have said, well, there must have been some things he wasn't good at or didn't do well or whatever. And I think the upshot of all that was, well, your dad's, character wasn't always the best. That's a pretty soft negative, isn't it? For yeah. someone who left your daughter stranded. At that time, I didn't even know what the word character meant, so I must have been pretty young. Was it a cartoon character? I mean, I wonder what she was talking about. Character, character. And it wasn't until many, many years later where I understood what character meant. It's your value system. It's... it's um, what you stand for, um, your integrity. 
uh, then I understood that was a pretty withering negative. Um, but I didn't know what it meant. Mm. I mean, there are too many more condemning statements than that. You know, you don't say someone well, he's not a good tennis player, he doesn't swim very well. When you say he doesn't, his character was not always the best. That gets right to the point, doesn't it? The three women who raised my father and his brother avoided saying anything that might tarnish any memories the boys had of their father. They didn't want to paint a negative image, and I admired that incredibly. They allowed me to have a good feeling about um, my father, even though he brought a lot of pain and awkwardness and difficulty into their lives. And whenever it did come up, they always talked in positive tones. Everything was framed positively. Things like he was tall, he was strong, he was handsome, he was athletic, he had a great voice and used to sing in operas and theater, local theater, um, those types of things. Of course, those weren't the real issues that were important. And as a young person, you know, I didn't realize what were the right questions to answer, like character and why isn't he around and why doesn't he call and why doesn't he pay anything. And, you know, you don't ask those kind of questions, but you do wonder why your dad's not around. But mostly they didn't bring it up if we didn't raise a question. And those questions just didn't get raised very much, you know. I had a happy childhood. They must have gotten together and said, you know, we've got to make sure these boys feel good about their father even though he's not around here. That's a pretty selfless thing for them to say. They've had a lot of pain. That's pretty, they talk about character of people. hardest time I can remember is when you're in elementary school, every year with a new teacher, you have to fill out some administrative card that gets filed, and you have to write parents' address and occupation and phone number and just basic family stuff. And most people would go, you know, their dad and then for their mom's name, and then they would put same underneath it. And for my dad, I would just I'd write his name, and then I would write unknown. That always bothered me. I didn't even know where he was. It was like a missing MIA. It was, you know, just somebody on the lam, somebody who's lost and gone. It was just a strange and awkward thing for me to have to do that. But then when you got out of school, it was no big deal at that point. It really just... I didn't think about it that much, particularly when I went off to college. It was like people didn't know your parents, so they didn't ask. And then it just got farther and farther away that you didn't really think about it at all. But as I got older, I got into thinking, you know, a man doesn't leave his family. He doesn't leave two young boys and not pay attention to them. You know, what? causes him to do that, especially when you have children. I couldn't possibly imagine being away from my kids. And here's a guy who, apparently, with a lot of ease, 
just said, I'm out of here. And not just casually out of here, just gone. I mean, when he left, it was as if he vanished into a black hole. No. No letters, phone calls, no visits, nothing. He was gone. But believe me when I say I don't lose sleep over it. It's not something that has I carry as a burden. It's not something that's changed me and I'm, I can't function because of it. It's just the way it is. Here, my father describes the specifics of when he first learned that Uncle Mark had finally tracked down their father. When Mark found the information, I didn't even know he was really looking for it. And it was like, I mean, we've got a dad for 50 years. That's half a century. He must have called me. And I think I tracked down, uh, tracked down a death certificate or I got a match on, it looks like it might be, uh, but the dates are off, the name's the same, the date's the same, but the year of birth is not right. And So he kind of said, really? But, you know, my response was like, really? What, what else do you know? I said, well, if it is the same person, he, you know, he died you know, six months ago. And then the next thing you find out, the next time you talk to him, he's had all these conversations with his widow and other people and sister-in-law, I mean, sisters and things like that. So he really had been after the information about my father, our father, a lot more aggressively than I realized. I do remember standing in Kay's kitchen when Mark had walked in your chat and then he just casually <clears throat> handed me a stapled thing of papers that had all kinds of stuff he'd printed off the internet apparently when he died <clears throat> this is very common now when people die set up an internet site so that people can send in their condolences and post it almost like a blog there was a whole bunch of people that wrote in about my father um, how he used to come and help them and he was like a grandfather to me and I can't imagine anyone better and blah 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 and I just found that incredibly ironic that I'm watching this, reading this about a dad who was not at all that to me in any way that people are calling him just the grandfather I always wanted type of thing I just couldn't believe that so I'm at Mark's house and he hands me this <clears throat> stuff printed off the internet and there's a picture that came off of this printer, and it shows um, two women smiling that don't look at all alike. One is short, round face, dark hair, <clears throat> and one is tall, <clears throat> more of a slender face, blonde hair, and that's Carrie. And it's a picture of Carrie, and he says, well, who's this? I said, well, that's your sister, or our sister. I said, what? That, of all the stuff that I didn't really have an emotional reaction at all to my dad's time, it was just really, how'd you find that? That was basically about my reaction. But when he told me I had a sister, half sister, it's just 
You're kidding. I mean, that really preoccupied me for a number of months. Just, my God, what she like? Carrie, and from her half-sister Lisa, my dad was able to fill in some of the story about what had happened to his father after he disappeared from their lives. After he moved out, Art Hansen married three more times. So he went in and moved in with another woman and never told her that he had had children, never told her that she was, he was married, never told him anything. So that when Mark called the widow of my father in Florida. They had a long conversation, shocked her, but he found out from her that Arthur Hansen had a daughter in California. So he talked to Lisa, the sister, and so she was in shock that Art Hansen, who really raised her, she's born in 56 to a, a woman who was married uh, and got divorced. That would be Pat. And then she's a cocktail waitress, single mother, trying to raise a daughter that's four years old, three or four. And then Art Hansen wanders in. They work together. They end up moving in together. They end up doing this in Manhattan Beach, of all places. And this was like 1960. And then together they have a child that turns out to be Carrie. And then my dad spends 1960 to 1970, roughly 10 years, living with this woman and raising two daughters. So the older daughter, Lisa, if he was, she was three or four when my dad moved into the picture, that's probably the only father she remembers having. But then my dad moves out and then ends up getting married to another woman and 75 that only lasts a year but that brought him to North Hollywood where Mark ironically was in school at the time I was away at college but he was in high school in Hollywood High School and then he ended up getting married maybe another five years later to the woman that he spent the last 25 years of his life with seems like he was always very close to where we were, but we never knew it, we never ran into him, we never tracked, tracked him down, none of that stuff. But I find that ironic. It even be an element of him wondering how his boys were doing. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah, I had basketball games that he attended in the stands and I never knew it. Or <clears throat> graduations or ceremonies. You just don't know. He didn't share that with any spouse, with any child, with no one. It's just something he carried himself. And I mean, I learned more about my father talking to Carrie and her sister than I ever knew about him. Turns out he was a very loud person when he walked into a room you have someone my size but with a very loud voice and demonstrative personality and and um he just kind of dominated a room 
Uh, and I don't know. I personally don't like being around people like that. And um, I think everything has to go through him or operate through him. So he liked to be a bartender <clears throat> and bouncer <clears throat> where he could be at the bar and talk to anybody. If anybody got in trouble, he would grab them and throw them out in the back and you know, punch them or break up fights. You know, he was always the big, strong guy in the room. There's even a story of um, he punched out some owner of a bar that they were leasing from a restaurant in Manhattan Beach because he did something with the lease. And basically the guy, they lost the whole bar because his temper, he just got in a fight and ended the whole business transaction, probably lost a whole lot of money and not to mention their jobs. The more he learned about his father, the more thankful he became that he hadn't in fact been raised by him. My father wonders who he might have become if his father had been in the picture. And I look at Carrie, and she just talks horribly about living with him. I mean, just, she was terrified. She was intimidated. Um, she was in fear of him all the time. And it just wasn't uh, a pleasant way for her to grow up. And she's had a very hard life. It's not a life you want to just run up and embrace and plug into yours. You want to keep a little distance. Because she brings a lot of baggage. So, I look at Carrie, and I think, she's a product of my, or our father. I mean, she's living a life that my dad lived in some ways. And in some ways, she got the nurture part, and I got the nature part. When I say I got, you know, Mark too, but... And uh, she got the short end of the deal. I mean, she was raised by a man who um, didn't have the values and character of the women who raised Mark and I. And I am grateful now that I found out that um, I wasn't raised by my father, that he wasn't in my life at all. But a word I haven't used is insecure. I think a lot of the loud, boisterous, chest-pounding, front-and-center behavior may come from an insecurity on his part that he didn't have any pedigree, that he didn't have money, that he didn't have position. What he had in spades was women found him very attractive. It was easy for him to attract women. He was tall, he was athletic, he probably was fun and outgoing. He you know, could put a bathing suit on, he could pick up a golf club, he could sing. I mean, just he just was craving respect in, in some ways. He got a job at the end of his life that he actually kept for a long time. It turns out he worked at Universal Studios in uh, North Hollywood. And I think he worked in the prop department or some area where he kept and organized things. And there were pictures that his wife sent Mark where he was with celebrities and different people and 
So he probably loved hanging around the studios with all the actors and actresses and things like that. Um, and I, I just think he craved some sort of public respect or attention and never really got it on his own. And um, maybe being around celebrities is something that gave him something that he could point to and say, look what I've done and look who I'm with and look what company I keep. I never put my dad on a pedestal. Um, I wasn't going around talking about, oh, my dad, yeah, he's, he's, he was a world champion boxer, or he won the Medal of Honor, or, oh, yeah, he's coming back as soon as he makes his first million. You know, I didn't deal in fantasies. I didn't deal in dreams. I didn't deal in make-believe about my father. I never put him on a pedestal. I guess when I found out about my father, it's like these archaeologists that go to Troy or Rome and they see one of these marble columns that has fallen over and the arm's broken off and the nose is cracked and things like that over time. And that's kind of the father I found. He was already off the pedestal. In all fairness to him, I've never heard his side of the argument. Maybe there was something between him and my mom did that drove him away. It's true or not, I mean, I've, I know my mom. And, but uh, I don't want to judge him without knowing his side of the program, which I won't ever know. So I just consider his life like some character I'm reading about in the book. Yeah, just take it as it is. Though my father rarely articulated his questions, if indeed he ever consciously thought them, the unsolved mystery of his father's departure was often in the back of his mind. I always, you know, I always felt like there was going to be a knock at the door and my father was going to show up and enter my life somehow because I never knew where he went. Maybe he'd come back as an old man, kind of like Robert Frost, the hired man, who shows up to die at the place where he used to be a hired man. And I always felt like he might just show up and say, here I am, you know, I need money or I need a place to stay. And I would be reintroduced to him in those terms. But he showed up as a death certificate. Um, so he never did choose to come back into our lives. I guess that's the, one of the key observations is he was able to keep this charade going his whole life and never kind of came back and said, I'm sorry, or came back and said, you know, I made a mistake, or came back and said, I just wanted to get to know you before I die. He never did. So maybe it wasn't important to him. Maybe he didn't about it. You just, you just don't know. Sometimes we put our rock legends on pedestals. Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra, Kurt Cobain. 
This is an excerpt from Andrew Altschul's Lady Lazarus. What happens when our heroes aren't really as heroic as they seem? We start with an introduction by the author. Lady Lazarus is a novel that focuses on the character of Calliope Bird Morath, who is a modern-day confessional poet, and she's also the daughter of two colossally famous rock stars, uh, Brant Morath, who achieved uh, tremendous uh, universal fame with his band Terrible Children in the early 90s before flaming out and uh, dying by suicide when Calliope was an, was a, a, an infant. Um, and her mother, Penny Power, who was the founder and, and leader of, of another punk band called Fuck Finn, um, but who, after her husband's death, uh, became something of a recluse. Um, the novel mostly focuses on Calliope, with a lot of attention on the story of her, her father's career and, and also his decline and death. Um, and uh, much of the novel is narrated by uh, a music journalist who's trying to write Calliope's biography uh, and doing a very bad job of it, and his name is Andrew Altschul. Uh, but some of the novel is narrated by Calliope herself, specifically um, when she's talking about her parents. Um, and while the focus of the novel and, um, and much of the media attention was always on her father, one of the things Calliope wants to do is make sure that her mother's story is also told. So, so here's a section where, um, where she is, is trying to reclaim um, the spotlight that her, that her mother lost when she, was, when she was eclipsed by Brant's death. And what of my suffering mother? You must want to know about her, Penny Power the bereaved, Penny the terrifying, Penny the aggrieved. No account would be complete without a close-up of her face. Picture poor Penelope, trapped in the Ithaca of her rock-and-roll fantasy, waiting stone-faced for an impossible return. And I, a pathetic Telemachus, bloodied at my father's hand, had no gift to ease her days, not a single consolatory word. Who was left to watch over her? Who would hold her elbow, shrieve her soul? Who'd lift the albatross from her shoulders, the collateral damage from a vagrant's undiscriminating bow? Yes, you've seen her on your television, you've seen her in your fashion magazines, but they can't tell of the long vigil on the windy widow's walk, the distant sliver of ocean on which she rested her bloodshot hopes. They don't convey the babble of lawyers and VPs, police, producers and debtors, the deluge of claims against him, the groupies who swore to God they'd bedded him and were carrying his true heirs, the bonds against cancellation in Oslo, Krakow, Sydney, Rotterdam, the dealers with cocaine noses, the skinny-tied Shylocks demanding their pound of meat, a hundred and eight suitors with pens and tape recorders hurling themselves into her moat. What would you have had her do, O oh disapproving one? Don her best sari, make herself pretty, lie down at his side in useless punk rock sooty? Then you don't know my mother. You think you've seen her, do you? You think that what you read is true, that the photos with Hefner, with Bono and Keitel, the mugshots and gold records can explain this bell in all her complexity? At long last, sir, have you no sense of your own gullibility? Are you interested in what really is? Would you like to try a little quiz? True or false, she was born in Detroit in the summer of love, illegitimate offspring of a groupie and the drummer of the MC5. 
False, you fool. You're already failing. They made that one up for the liner notes of Fuck Finn's first EP. Not bad for a couple of girls with no marketing degree. Number two, are you still having fun? Her mother never told her the secret of her paternity, saving that factoid for the night of her sweet sixteen. She spent her adolescence praying to the gods of rock, Iggy and the Stooges, the Dolls, the Thin White Duke, and yes, the Motor City's dissonant quintet, all adorned her walls, watched over her restless futon nights, her backstage dreams, her slippery thighs, until the night of her birthday when a leather-clad leviathan stepped through the front door. Your father, said Grandma, and my mother just gaped. She recognized his face from the poster above her bed, the curled lip and the dark eyes that had presided over her sweaty fantasies. Daughter, he smiled, and Penelope fled. She packed a bag, smashed her piggy bank. By sunrise, she'd made it to Chicago. By the next night, Cedar Falls. She hitchhiked her way to her West Coast destiny, holing up at a New Mexico nunnery before arriving at the beach with only the clothes on her back. Well, this story, you say, has got to be true. It fits so well with the face, the songs. It has its own logic. How could it be wrong? Ah, but it is, despite your surprise. Sorry to tell you, bub, you're 0 for 2. What about the speed addiction, the psychotic episode, the year in juvenile detention? Strikes 3, 4, and 5, you're out, and then some. Surely she had an affair with Kim Gordon. That's how she learned to play bass. Surely she lived in a Tijuana brothel, charging 50 pesos just to look at her face? No, and no again, mon cher. Really, I'm surprised. Can't you tell when you're being conned, when the machine is manufacturing a star right before your eyes? Listen closely if you choose. I'll whisper in your ear. She grew up in New Jersey. Middle-class suburbs, braces, JV tennis, the whole bit. Daddy's little favorite, groomed for the Ivy League, stealing off to New York on school nights to hear Blondie and the Ramones, smoking pot in Washington Square with her giggling girlfriends, then off to Yale, where she majored in drama, had her first real boyfriend, a doctor's son from Brookline. My friends, am I boring you yet? Penny could have gone on to do anything, law school, med school, family connections on Broadway. But Mousy Penelope bought a ticket with her graduation check, and when the plane landed in San Diego, outstepped Penny Power, parentless miracle of self-invention, a fright to behold. Oh, my beautiful Gorgon, how you blazed a trail through the beach clubs and the biker bars, walked the streets with a bass strapped to your back, singing your tentative first songs while sitting on some hell's angel's lap. Shameless, they called you. And maybe you were, strutting around in a bikini, showing off your assets to the frat boys on Pacific Beach, inviting them to your coffeehouse gigs with a bat of your eyelashes and a cock of your hips. They came by the hundreds, to the interchange, to Ground Zero, to Java Joe's, tiny rooms overflowing for every acoustic Thursday show. Aha, you think, my vigilant one, now this is the penny I love and know. She'd start out sweetly, just a girl and her ex, her voice a melancholy whisper over the thrum and the slap, building and deepening, drawing the room in as she stood from her stool and bared her teeth, a howl that seemed to come from somewhere else, a dark planet called pain. Soon she was flat on her back, thrusting her hips, writhing across the stage. Everyone was paralyzed, swept up and whirling in the funnel cloud of her rage. 
Week after week, they watched her pour out her fury, mesmerized by her spotlit catharses, red-faced, wailing. She rubbed her fingers raw on the strings. In the front row, they could feel the heat radiating from her body, the waves of desperation when she stepped up to the mic to sing. And though she was beautiful, everyone said so, tall and raven-haired, gray eyes, a model's proud bearing. They all felt they knew her. They felt she was speaking to their most private, aching fears when she sang what would become her anthem, a little ditty you might have heard called Ugly Like Me. We're going to transform the world, she told the slack-jawed crowd. Her set finished. She stood dripping in sweat, T-shirt torn and sticking to her chest, her face streaked with tears. The hushed room trembled in joy and a palpable terror that the soul-splitting howl they'd been holding inside might find its way out now, that this self-loathing they'd carried around might one day prove the mark of their worth. You don't believe me, said Teenex erstwhile most likely to, the victim of a profound, hollowing grief, but it's all going to turn upside down. People like us can be happy, my mother said. People like you and me are allowed to be happy. Then she hid her face in her hands and sobbed, her shoulders heaving, reflections from her base shooting prisms of light over mute faces. Every boy and girl, every man and woman in that room wanted to put their arms around her and take her home. But who's that skinny kid, crushed against the back wall, his weak heart pounding with love? He would go to her now if he weren't frightened to death, pinned by the elbows of the newly converted. Who is that unshaved waif, waiting for a signal all these years, singing his songs to the homeless and the bent, cutting his skin with exacto knives? Imagine the shock when my father saw his own reflection. Imagine what went through his head as she looked up and hiccuped the manifesto of the new revolution. Fuck the beautiful, she said. Well, my astute little punk devotee, you think you know all the rest, how she found three more losers and called them Fuck Finn, how they sailed across the San Diego skies and landed at the top of the Casbah heap, the local record companies squabbling over the EP, how she finally did meet Brandt in the back room one night, two years after he'd first laid eyes on her, how they married six months later, her belly not yet swelling, the car crash in Ensenada on the way to their honeymoon. Steadily, they waged war on the mainstream, my mother, always the brains and the drive, working her contacts, seducing booking agents, buttonholing producers and critics alike. Where would he have been without her, that shy kid with his soggy bedroll, that angelic delinquent with his pocket rembo? When self-doubt overcame him and he reached for a drink, who would smooth his forehead, kiss his eyelids, who rubbed his tired shoulders and lit his cigarette? When his lyrics rang trite, chord progressions stillborn, who picked up the guitar and said, let's try B-flat. Dirt nap, kill the surfers, even Thorazine days. His best songs might have never been written without her intervention. She had a dream, she could see the future, and nothing was going to prevent its realization, not even herself. 
No one will ever know what your love and belief mean to me, my father muttered into the microphone at the MTV Awards. Fidgeting like a fifth grader in a pink tuxedo, his bandmates jostling each other behind him, the girls in the audience shrieking on cue. You could hear the quaver in his quiet words. The crowd sucked in their breath as he held the best new group trophy over his head and said, Penny, this is for you. So don't you dare tell me she coasted on his fame. Don't purse your lips. Don't shrug your shoulders and belittle her good name. Stalker, barnacle, starf. Yoko, she heard it all over the years, but not once did she waver from the course they'd laid. Not for a moment did she doubt their ambitions or underestimate the price that would have to be paid. Can you imagine what she did for him? The excuses she made up, the distractions she provided, the shortcomings and the drugs that she hid for him? When he was picked up in Pittsburgh, who took the rap? When he wanted to fire their first manager, who made the tough phone call? Who let fall the axe? Weeks that she didn't see him, sent people out to the fishing pier, to the flea bag motels to make sure he was still alive. The long nights in our house when she waited for him to come to bed, found him passed out in the studio in a puddle of vomit. She bathed his face, gently pulled the needle from the vein, and in the morning she brought him black coffee and a bottle of Xanax to soothe over the burn. Who do you think revived him in Mexico City that time? The largest free concert ever held in Chapultepec Park, that triumphant kickoff of the terrible Children's World Tour, the moment sweet San Diego boy became a global wonder. But long after midnight in the Four Seasons Hotel, she woke up with a start, the rising star next to her rigid and bluing. She knew without thinking what had happened. She knew there was no time to lose. She dragged him to the bathtub, ran the water deathly cold, slapped him and pounded his back, parted his lips and blew air into his lungs, the clock ticking, ticking. And then she climbed into the water on top of him and squeezed his body to hers. She started to pray, babbling to a god of whom she'd never asked a thing before. There was a shiver, a cough. His glazed eyes fluttered open. It's fucking cold, he groaned at last, his lips trembling, but slowly pinking. My indomitable mother took his chin in her hand. You won't escape me that easily, Brant, she said. We started something, and we're going to finish it. Andrew Altschul is a Jones lecturer at Stanford. His newest novel, Lady Lazarus, is on sale now. Now for an interview with Arnold Rampersad about his new biography of Ralph Ellison. Could it be, perhaps, that his human and very unheroic nature helps us to better appreciate the author and his work? Um, pretty early in my career, I, dis- I discovered that um, I really like biography. When I write a biography, um, I've not written that many, um, but if there are papers, I want to read the papers first. I want to go through as much as possible of, of the written material. And you have to be very careful about every bit of material that presents itself as evidence and letters written by him, letters written to him. 
Um, you have to be skeptical about their, you know, their their weight, their gravity, their their, their importance, their meaning. All letters are written strategically. You write a letter to your father, or your mother, your, or your teacher, or your this, that, the other. It, it, you, it's all, a, it's all, a, you know, it's a, they're all, they're all strategic, and the biographer has to sort of unpack the elements of strategy that we use when we write to different people. One question that that popped up uh, almost every time um, concerned Ellison's inability to publish a second novel um, in his lifetime after the triumph of his first novel, Invisible Man, in 1952. Um, he he lived um, a long time um, after that, um, 40 years or so, and yet still was unable to um, to publish a second novel in his lifetime, although he um, had continued to work, work and work fairly assiduously on this second novel. So that was always the, one of the big questions. But it was not a major question for me. I mean, it wasn't the major question. The major question for me was how he came to write Invisible Man, um, which is a remarkable novel, one of the, to me, one of the, um, you know, one of the great novels of the 20th century in English and certainly in the body of American literature. So how did he come to write that book, um, which set an absolutely new standard for African-American fiction writing, but also a very high stand, sta um, standard um, and perhaps even a kind of breakthrough standard for American post-war fiction. Um, so that was the main question for me. How did he come to write this? And as a biographer, I mean, I didn't think that you could a answer that question um, um, by simply examining the text. You have to examine the life. The other big question about Ellison's life is, why was he unable to complete his second manuscript? Um, and I, you hear sort of, you know, pop psychological theories about why that was the case. And the one I've most heard is that he was, in, a sem in some sense, a, a victim of his own success. Invisible Man was so well-received that he felt that he needed to top it or that he needed to uh, go far beyond his own formidable achievement. Well, Ellison started at the top, you know, um, and um, uh, it, that it was his fate then to, um, to uh, as a, having started at, at the top, uh, it became very difficult for him to top himself. Um, I, I think he never wanted to do uh, lesser work, um, but it, perhaps it, it, it might have been the best thing if he had decided to put out books of short stories, to put out uh, an autobiography, a memoir of growing up in, in Oklahoma, um, uh, novels of, of that uh, were not, um, you know, Herculean in scale, uh, Olympian in scale. Uh, I think that um, probably that would have been the better thing for him to do, but he didn't do that. He wanted to, to write the, 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 the very great book. I think that at, at uh, the most fundamental level, he was an artist wrestling with artistic problems that he set for himself that were by no means outlandish. There was no reason why he couldn't 
no, 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 no absolute reason why he couldn't have produced another great novel. Um, he, he simply just did not make it easy for himself as a writer. I guess just talk a little bit about the responses to your book. Well, you know, I, I tend not to read the reviews if, I, if at all possible. I, mean, I don't, if I start reading a review and I see it's favorable, I, I set it aside. If I start reading a review and I see it's unfavorable, I set it aside. I don't really, I'm not interested in reviews. Um, uh, but, I mean, you know, I, I have some sense of, of the response and, um, um, I think again and again, critics said the book was critical but fair, which was all I wanted to hear, really, was fair. Uh, that was illuminating. I wanted that, too, that it understood the importance of the, of, of the, um, of the, of the art. Um, privately, I mean, there are people who, um, who virtually do not speak to me because of the, of, of the um, who see the book as some kind of betrayal. Uh, I mean, he deserves to be very, very highly re respected as an intellectual, as an artist. Um, but it's for, for many people, it went too far, and it went too far in a particular direction. For a lot of um, of, of uh, black critics, especially younger black critics, nationalistic black critics, and writers, um, um, some of the things that Ellison said, some of the kind of auteur that he brought to um, to the, the, the question of black art, black power, uh, black consciousness, um, a lot of people found that unfortunate and even intolerable. But I wasn't writing for them. I was simply trying to quote unquote tell the truth um, to show. Um, to show him um, in his moments of generosity, but also show some of his mean streaks, show, show the limitations of his capacity for sympathy. I mean, for example, one could look at uh, his, his relationship to Toni Morrison. In a way, Toni Morrison supplanted uh, Ralph Ellison as the most prestigious, uh, having won the Nobel Prize, she did so, of, of black American writers. It doesn't mean that she's written a, a greater novel than Invisible Man, but she has supplanted him. And uh, when she talks about her, his relationship to her, I mean, it's, it's uh, all about the fact that he never tried to help her in any way, even though they were both Random House authors. Um, and they're people who told painful stories about... Uh, um, how Ellison treated them, and they couldn't help but think that it had to do with the fact that that they were black, just as Ellison was black, and that he um, believed he had to behave in a certain kind of uh, absolutely severe way in dealing with younger people. He didn't help younger people, certainly not younger black artists and scholars. And I, I felt that was an important story to tell. And I also thought that it was implicated in his inability to finish his, his, his second novel. Um, he was at some distance from African-American culture and younger blacks in particular, black writers, people like Ishmael Reed and others, yet still he wanted to write about the culture. And um, I thought there was almost certainly bound to be some trouble in that regard. It's as if Faulkner, you know, was writing about the South, but but hated the South. Well, he didn't hate the South. Uh, you know, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't hate the South. You know, um, uh, he was critical of of, uh, of the White South, but uh, it, to him, it remained home. And um, and uh, I, I'm not sure that Ellison 
was able to achieve the same kind of equipoise as his life, uh, you know, grew on and on and on. And well, you know, whatever I saw, I have the feeling Ellison saw, you know, but he could not control himself in that regard, in that way. Um, he was so smart, he, he, I think he knew the corners he was painting himself into. I very much was interested in Toni Morrison's um, reaction, uh, the extent to which she w w would be willing to talk to me. And, uh, and she said that, uh, that uh, you know, that she had been reluctant at first, but it was only when she saw that I did not intend to write um, some flattering biography, some worshipful, bi worshipful biography that she immediately decided and that, that she was, um, would be willing to talk to me. And at the end of the book, she, um, I make sure that in a way that she has an important voice at the end of the book, um, it's a cl the clash of titans, as it were, or at least the opposition of titans. And she um, takes some pains to decide whether uh, Ralph Ellison was a tragic figure or not. And she says, no, 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 he wasn't really a tragic figure, but he was a sad figure. Tragic, tragedy, she says, requires a certain kind of grandeur. And I think she meant by that the, um, that there wasn't a sufficient... Um, concussion, as it were, in his fall. Uh, he didn't fall. Uh, um, uh, he, but there was a sadness in the way he was unable to, to, to handle his life and the changes in, 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 uh, in American culture, uh, even though he seemed to be on, on top of them, um, so that uh, there was a loneliness to the man at the end that she found unfortunate. I guess I'll just give you a final opportunity. Is, is, is there anything, uh, any addenda or sort of postscripts that you'd like to add? I think the biography, even though it in a way exposes Ellison in many respects, uh, makes him a far more interesting figure and makes Invisible Man um, a, 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 a a, a book, a richer book to read. I, I would like to think so, and I, I, I see no evidence to the contrary at all. Arnold Rampelsad is a professor of American literature at Stanford University. His biography of Ralph Ellison, entitled Ralph Ellison, a Biography, was published in April. Today's program was produced by myself, Charlie Mintz, Noah Burbank, and Lee Constantino, along with help from Lee Constantino and Jonah Willingance. It was engineered by Charlie Mintz. Thanks to Brent Hansen, Andrew Altschul, and Arnold Rampersad. The original music for the show was produced by Noah Burbank. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Initiative for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communications Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West. Remember that you can find the podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website at storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week when we'll, have, when we'll hear stories about urban gardening. For the Stanford Storytelling Project... I'm Killing Hansen.